Welcome back to Real Voices of the Game. I'm Dave D'Agostino, and I'm joined here by our host and star of this show, Jim Rooney. This is Toe the Rubber, episode 355 on our network. Before we bring Jim on, just want to thank our audience. Getting close to 60,000 subscribers uh, helped us boost our status to get on iHeartRadio's very powerful podcast network. You can still stream us on Apple, Amazon, Spotify, or Stitcher, whatever your favorite streaming device is. Make sure after the show you give us five stars, write some nice comments for Jim because we do battle the analytics of the podcast world, just like we do in Major League Baseball. And to our friend and partner in crime, Blackout Coffee, their slogan, Be Awake, Not Woke. I'm drinking my espresso right now out of my Blackout Coffee mug. If you type in DAVID, all capital letters, followed by the number 20, at checkout, they'll give you a 20% discount. And then from now till the end of time, you'll get 15% off of all your coffee purchases. So love a friend that loves coffee, loves baseball, and certainly gives us discounts. So Jim, welcome back to your show. How you doing, Dave? Doing, doing well. Just trying to keep track of all these uh, managerial changes here in Major League Baseball and track the free agency, too. It gets to be a little dizzying at times. Yeah, yeah. The funny thing is that uh, no matter how good they are, you know, as the managers or, or people, uh, they accept the job. They all start to seem to be saying the same thing. <laughs> yeah, they have that press conference. And then, you know, the last four managers of the year have been fired. I noticed that, um, with Buck Showalter being the the latest and that's, that's not a good sign for winning that award, I guess. Whoever got it this year has got to be concerned next year. And I, I was told, and again, this was at the college level, not the pro level, but say so when you get your first, when you get your head coaching job, whether it's your first, second, third, fourth, fifth, just write down all the, the great friends you acquired the first three months, because after four years, they're going to be gone. They're going to be uh, running in different directions. So um, I'm sure these these seasoned veterans are used to that lifestyle of staying a step ahead of the posse. Yeah, I mean, uh, I think sometimes when you look at baseball and the state of the game currently that uh, I've always stated that a lot of times um, if you want to say not necessarily uh, old school baseball guys but I mean if you're talking about guys that were you know came up in the game as players and coaches and you know in the old days the coaches uh, players used to uh, come up as coaches or managers and then those managers some of them moved into the front office and became general managers a lot of people had you know playing the game as as their background at whatever level they had achieved and uh, many times I've stated to a couple of buddies of mine that, uh, you know, a lot of, uh, a lot of where so-called baseball is currently, you know, with the analytics and, uh, and the young guys come out of, uh, you know, the Ivy league schools or, um, using the analytics and, and, and other tools, uh, they, um, baseball people allowed that to happen. You know, because uh, I, I compare it to the NFL. NFL, there's, uh, you know, mutual sharing of uh, TV contracts and all the thing. It's more of a national type of an institution instead of a regional one, which baseball is, especially in the TV networks. And uh, information is shared and everybody works together, it seems. At least they try to, to put the good of the NFL ahead of everything else. Um, and in that sport, uh, it, it appears as if the commissioner has a, a fair amount of power and pull, but in baseball, we go back to the, the old baseball days. Everybody thinks that their information or the way they do it, uh, is better than another way. Uh, you didn't see You don't see a lot of sharing going on. Um, you don't see a lot of, uh, um, working together as far as to promote the game of baseball on a national level. You see a lot of uh, 
a lot of infighting. Um, just look back to when the uh, Manfred was elect- elected commissioner. I, I kid that it's almost like electing the Pope. There's silent secret ballots and it might've went to like seven or eight or maybe nine ballots this time. And uh, all the different uh, deal making behind the scenes in order for uh, Selleck to get his guy and different things like that. Um, but baseball people allowed that P- baseball people trying to keep everything private, um, trying to think their way is necessary, you know, the right way. Um, they allowed the door open. Uh, I mean, I've sat in many draft rooms and we've had conversations and some of them were excellent, you know, draft rooms. And some of them were the politics that went on was, uh, off the charts and, uh, if you're an owner of a team and you're looking for the bottom line and you start to see that uh, there's a lot of cronyism going on, you know, a lot of hiring of buddies and bringing buddies there or old teammates there, or uh, on one end, you're, you're, you're the baseball guy. So you're looking for people that you can trust. But on the other side is we're not necessarily putting the proper people in the proper positions to, to work to work effectively and ownership then comes in and, and if they're give you know, if they're uh, looking for a new GM or a new baseball guy and, and here's a guy that comes in and says, I can save you money and I can do this and we can become more efficient and we can streamline this operation. Well, these owners or these corporations that own the clubs nowadays, I mean, that's how they conduct their business off the field. So why wouldn't they buy into that system? So, um, it's something that's kind of created, and that's why I think um, in some of these press conferences and stuff, now, you know, some guys will go out there and tell you exactly what they feel, but it it, it's, it om- almost seems a lot of retreaded information that we're going to do this and we're going to do this and we're going to do this well, and you know, and, and you know, uh, a lot of words, but sometimes we don't see it put into action. Yeah, they, they've certainly mastered the press conference. That's the... Seems the thing that's that's what people try to win. They in today's world of influence over excellence, with with a lot of hires, regardless of sport, they they go after winning that press conference. It gets the big hype for a three month period, and then you know they hope people lose interest in it and move on to the next shiny object for the next three months. So um, I didn't mean to digress early on in your podcast. I that's what happens when you ask me what's going on. I uh, I could take it whatever way. My brain is working that morning, but uh, not at all, because it brings me to the the first thing that uh, we're going to talk about off season conditioning and throwing programs and stuff. But as usually happens with me is uh, I come across something during the week and uh, it grabs my attention and I start thinking about it. And many times there's something in my past that relates to it. But uh, what I want to share with you today was I read a quote where they, uh, Someone stated one of the greatest little uh, soliloquies, if you want, uh, was uh, Vin Scully in the game, uh, the, the Costner movie, For the Love of the Game, where Costner is Billy Chapel and he's pitching at Yankee Stadium and it could be his last start of his career. And he does know that that's, you know, the sun setting on the opposite side of his career and, and this is it. And he's in the midst of pitching a perfect game and they're flashing back to different points in his life that have brought him to where he is on that day and different things, you know, on the field and off the field. And, uh, the end of, I mean, Scully goes into, uh, you know, a, one of those classic Vin Scully stories, but I'm not going to read the whole thing to it. But at the end he says, and tonight, I think you might be able to use that aching old arm one more time to push the sun back up in the sky and give us one more day of summer. Now, it immediately triggered in me uh, something that occurred in in my past. When I was done playing ball, uh, you know, due to the shoulder surgeries and things that were a result of the accident I was in, um, I went back to New York and uh, a bunch of guys I went to high school with or were a little older with me decided that uh, they were all big into softball, but decided that this 30 and over league for baseball was, they were going to put a team in it. That uh, the league was newly formed in uh, the area of New York we're from. And of course they called me up. Would I like to play now? 
the group of guys that were there, there was a couple of them that probably were closer to my age and we had played ball together and played in high school together, but a vast majority of them were, let's say, done with high school by the time I got up to the varsity team. Now, this is a group of guys that they all went on to be pretty successful as you know, plumbers, electricians, construction workers, building houses. They all had their own construction companies and, and stuff. Uh, one guy moved on to become one of the uh, vice president or president of one of the largest uh, construction wholesalers in the country. So they are very competitive, tough people. And um, to make a long story short, None of them really, there might have been one other guy to play Division One baseball. And uh, so I thought about it and I said, uh, well, guys, I'll I'll come to your practice and we'll work out. And, and uh, yeah, I'd love to play. So they're going to play Sunday nights at a field next to my parents' house. By that time, I was living in Manhattan with my training business. And uh, I uh, decided, yeah, let's give it a shot. But I can't pitch. I can't, I can't throw anymore. And uh, they said, yeah, yeah, no problem. So we go and play our first little scrimmage game. And we're playing, uh, in those days, there was no independent ball or anything like that. So it was one of these open leagues, semi-pro teams. And they were all in their early 20s. And here I was with a bunch of guys, 30 to 36 years old. Um, you know, most of them had spent the last 10, 15 years playing uh, fast pitch softball. And uh, the guy who's going to be the pitcher, he's a New York City fireman, hurts his back on the job. He's out on disability and they don't have any more pitchers. And basically there's now the team's going to fold because we don't have a pitcher. So they're asking me if I could pitch. So I said, all right, listen, since we're having so much fun and, and this is uh, this is a good little uh, get away from me, you know, play a game on Sunday night, see my parents get up in the morning, go to work. Um, so I tried pitching and, uh, you know, as the story goes, we go 17 and 0. I pitch all 17 games and I throw about four or five no hitters. And these are nine inning games. And uh, we only have one pitcher. So it's me. Well, at the start of this whole process, Pitch the game on Sunday night. By Wednesday morning, I can't even brush my teeth. I got to use my right hand to do everything. <laughs> my left hand, my left arm is uh, is gone. So uh, we finished the season seventeen and zero. We all we have a great time. It was a, a great time in my past, reconnecting with old friends and different things because I had been away from New York for over twenty years. Well, by about 10, 12 years at that time. Um. And I say to them, I say to the guy who's running the uh, team, I go, listen, um, there's a guy in Long Island. He's a multimillionaire. He runs one of, one of these 30 and over teams. And I guarantee he's been reading the papers and seeing the, the press that we've been getting, even though we're thinking we're just here having fun and it's enjoyable. He's going to challenge us to a game, you know, and uh, do not accept because this guy pays all those guys. They're all over 30, but they're recently released from double A AA or triple A or the big leagues. And uh, they go out every year to Phoenix to the uh, world championships and dominate. So please do not get sucked in. You, you know, you're just going to end up getting embarrassed or someone's going to get hurt. And about 10 days later, after the season's over, they got sucked into a game. So our, my guys, they're like, you know, we're going to show up to Baldwin Park, Long Island. Uh, I mean, we got Rocky Balboa cut off gray sweats and stuff and old bats that we had in the garage and all. And we walk into the field under the lights. And this team is in full brand new Met uniforms with the everything, the helmets, the, the wristbands, the, the batting gloves, the brand new bats, the whole thing. And they're taking batting practice. And they are basically hitting the balls over the light towers. And my guys who are, my teammates who are, like I said, tough cookies, they're like, oh my gosh, these guys are good. And I said, I told you we should not be here. And but you guys better toughen up because I didn't come out here to get embarrassed. 
So I start the game. Before the game starts, I'm, I'm warming up in the side, on the bullpen, if you would say. And uh, because of the nature of my injuries in my shoulder, uh, back in those days, they just took parts out. They didn't really replace them or anything like that. So I had some instability in the shoulder. Um, and uh, by about the third or fourth warm-up pitch, it just pops right out of the joint. It separates. And uh, the guys are there because now they're, you know, they're, I would say it's beyond their interest being peaked. They're they're basically nervous as all heck because they're watching this other team take infield band practice, and you know it's a it's a semi pro team that has a lot of studs, and uh, a couple of the guys that I'm close to come over to me and they go, Jim, you you can't you can't do this if you, if your shoulder popped out and it, it just come on, and I said, guys, you have nobody else to pitch. I didn't drive an hour and a half with you to come here and get embarrassed and humiliated. So, uh, and of course, at the time, there was a a fair share of expletives thrown in. And I said, so you do me a favor. You keep your mouth shut. You catch the ball. You throw the ball. And you compete your butt off. I'll figure out how I'm going to pitch. And they're like, you can't pitch. Your shoulder popped out. So I went over to a picnic bench, and I popped my shoulder back in. And, uh moved it around a little bit and thought, uh, Oh wow. How am I going to get through this? So I, uh, throw a couple of warm up pitches and, uh, the pain is, is evident. And, uh, so I walked to the back of the mound. Um, and this is, this is the God's honest truth. I, I looked up to the, to the heavens and I basically made a pact. I said, uh, I said, big guy, if you can give me this one more evening, I'll never do this again. And I start warming up. I was feeling a little bit better. Uh, but the nature of my injuries is that even when I was rehabbing, trying to come back, uh, I, I never was able to recapture the late bite, hard downward bite of what I call my left-handed slider. So I started throwing more... Uh, curveballs and others as my secondary pitches with my changeup. So I start throwing. I get through the, I think, first two or three innings, and uh, we're surviving. It's a 0-0 game. And I look up, and an old scout who I knew is walking his dog in Baldwin Park. And he comes up to me, and he says, Jim, what are you doing here? I said, listen. You've not seen me here. You did not see me. And if I find out that you tell people that I'm here, I'm going to have to come looking for you. Fair enough. Are you making a comeback? No, I'm not making a comeback. Just please. And he kind of goes on walking his dog. And uh, we score two runs and we're winning two nothing. Our guys, my guys are making the plays. After about an inning or two, they realized that they had to, you know, speed up their clock because these guys were still in good shape and, and very good athletes in order for us to make plays, especially in the infield. And uh, I look up and here's the old scout now standing behind home plate with um, with his radar gun. And something that at that point clicked in and I start getting on a roll, and later on he tells me I'm throwing about 92 to 95, and the slider's starting to come back, and I'm starting to mow these guys down. And in the seventh inning, I come up to the plate, and he brings in a, uh, the manager. Now, the multimillionaires sitting in the dugout also, but they bring a uh, right-handed pitcher in, who I was told had just been released from AAA. He was more of a 4A guy. But he's thrown, he's thrown in the mid-90s easy. I mean, he, my guys are looking at him warm up and, you know, with uh, with uh, eyes the size of softballs. And uh, I get up. I'm the first batter to face him. And on purpose, he hits me right in the front hip. I'm a left-handed batter, so right in the right hip. And I knew he did it on purpose. I looked in the dugout at the, at the multimillionaire. And uh, 
limped to first base. They were able to put a runner in for me. I sit back in the dugout, and the guys are coming over to me. All right, Jim, Jim, you've shown enough. You've proved enough. And I basically launched into them, uh, and I said, listen, why don't you guys go back to doing what you're doing, shut your mouths, take care of business, okay? We're going to win this game. And I proceeded to go out in the seventh, eighth, and ninth inning and strike out nine guys in a row. So at the age of, at the age of 30, 31 years old, uh, you know, I made that pact with the big guy upstairs, I guess. And uh, for that evening, everything came back. And I ended up, uh, I think it was a nine-inning shutout. I struck out 19 guys, gave up two hits, something in that area. And uh, we win the game. So... You know, everybody's shaking hands after the game, the whole thing. And uh, you're going down the line. And the last guy, I'm the last guy in our line. And the last guy in their line is their manager and the uh, multimillionaire who funds the whole operation. And the millionaire says to me, Jim, um, that was the one of the greatest pitching performances I had ever seen in this league or anybody that we've ever faced. And um Two two weekends from now, we're going out to Phoenix for the World Championship. I can I can guarantee you two starts, maybe three. I'll give you ten thousand dollars a start if you'll come pitch for us. And uh, I said, uh, sir, um, why don't you take your money and shove it where the sun doesn't shine? How about that? Okay, you take care. Good luck. <laughs> and. Uh, I kept my word. I never pitched in a baseball game ever after that. So the reason why I brought it up is many years later, uh, we read Vince Scully's line, but many years later, I'm the pitching coordinator for the Milwaukee Brewers, and we're in the clubhouse in spring training. And I have a whole bunch of, you know, very successful major league pitchers working for me as the pitching coaches. (laughs) John Curtis, the left-hander from the Red Sox and and the Padres, and maybe a little Cardinals. Mark Littell, the closer for the Cardinals, and then the and then the uh, Royals, and a couple of others. And one thing led to another, and I'm telling that story. And it, all the coordinators are around, the infield instructors, the pitching coaches, a couple of the managers, and John Curtis, who's a highly intelligent individual, very well read. Um, in fact, even when he was coaching in the minor leagues with us. He, he was doing book reviews and stuff like that for some major, you know, publishing companies and stuff. And he said to me, he goes, Runes, that is the funniest story I've ever heard in my life. And the way you told it, you have to write a book. Well, I never wrote a book. So, uh, I decided to share that one with the, the audience today. Yeah. They, they, uh, I'm glad you didn't further your injury, but it kind of leads into our our show today, we're going to be talking a lot about off-season training programs for kids and for young adults as well, and, and pro players especially. And a lot of your, you know, I always tell people when you're choosing a coach, beware of the philosophologist. And I made up that word. Be uh, So if nobody look it up, the, the person who's never done it before but wants to instruct, construct, um, develop, train, want, just wants that, that, that hat to wear to, to pretend they're coaching and they're, they're dangerous out there. So, um, the audience does a number of things in, in addition to entertaining, but I think it leads us into our topics today, which, uh, you know, you've been there, done that. You've, you've, uh, you've seen the, the good, the bad and the ugly of pitching. So I'm, I'm excited to hear about, uh, our next steps with the training programs today. Cause we've been, we've been kind of leading up to this over the last few episodes. So I know our audience is, is anxious as well. Cause, they see this as the holy grail, and I remind them it's it's you know it's 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 tremendous information, and they uh, you know write it down, try it, reach out to Jim, ask questions, especially when you're not feeling right. So um, I'll kind of step aside, let you start sharing. Yes, thank you, Dave. Um, just to reiterate something that you you just stated, um, I'm I'm not the type of person that goes around and even tells people that I'm working with are different. You know, sometimes nowadays with Google and the internet and all that, they can find out who I am. But uh, just just for the audience, um, when you're looking for someone to, to help your young ball player, 
I oversaw the development of over 75 major league pitchers. Um, the current uh, Brewer staff of Brandon Woodruff, Corbin Burns, uh, Aaron Ashby, and Devin Williams, um, I had a pretty big hand in them becoming Brewers as far as when I was on the scouting side. Um, a lot of what I've done hasn't been recreated. My college coaching career, uh, knock on wood, there's never a pitcher that had a major injury while they played for me. Uh, my first year as Brewers pitching coordinator uh, reduced the overall injuries to pitchers by 70%. Um, I was lucky enough that we've discussed in the past to, to meet a lot of great people and, and to learn a lot of solid information, whether it's two Hall of Famers and Jim Palmer and Robin Roberts to, uh, you know, big time strength and conditioning coaches when I had the training business. Um, so a lot of what, uh, what I talk about, it's, it's, it's stuff that, um, it works. It's not a new shiny, uh, shiny toy or a new program or anything like that. It's just basic solid stuff that works. My time with my training business, I had the opportunity to, uh, work with, uh, and have dinner with Dr. William Kramer, the head of the national, uh, at the time was the head of the, uh, research at Penn state in strength and conditioning. Um, he was the head of the, uh, NSCS national strength and conditioning, uh, society. Um, I've had major strength coaches and conditioning coaches in all the major sports. Um, so a lot of what I, I talk about, you know, you can almost say, I'll say it's my stuff because it's my interpretation of all the things that I learned from those people. Uh, but it's not, I, I'm not reinventing the wheel. It's, it's just basic stuff. And uh, it starts off with the premise of, uh, we've stated this a few times, what Sandy Koufax talks about, that the pitching delivery is the proper positioning of the levers, which are the bones in your body. Uh, I think that's a part that's overlooked currently. Um, I think the way of strength and conditioning sometimes, especially in the past in the United States, has gone and followed the uh, rehabilitative uh, process where they isolate the muscles that move a particular joint and then they move into the compound closed chain kinetic exercise. There's value in that when you're coming back from an injury or you have a definite muscular imbalance that, that the body as a whole can't function as a unit properly because of a prior injury or a prior muscular imbalance. But in the majority of the young ballplayers that we're looking at here, close chain kinetic work is, is, is the most important thing. Um, because what I see happening is that um, we should learn to train the movements. We should learn to train the prime movers that create the movements that allow the levers to be in the proper position. But because of all new products and training protocols and whether it's plyo balls or tubing exercises or cross symmetry uh, or all kinds of different fancy uh, exercise equipment and, and, and workout facilities that we can go to a lot of times, especially in the young ball player, we spend more time um, training the st stabilizers of the joints than we do the prime movers. And Jim, again, give a couple examples of stabilizers. I know we've talked about it before, but just so our audience kind of gets refreshed on. Um, well, for, for example, the... Uh, um, Initially, something that everybody in the audience can relate to is that uh, you work out and then you see people doing uh, leg extensions on a machine or leg curls. 
and they're expending a lot of time and energy doing that, which I call open-ended or, or uh, isolation type work. And yet the quadriceps and the hamstrings don't necessarily work properly when they go to squat or split squat or step up or a squat or a deadlift variation. Um, you know, this could be uh, from a forward tilt to the pelvis. This could be the spine not functioning correctly. Uh, there's a lot of reasons why it happens. Um, that young player w- would it would be better served their time and 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 their effort if they started with a basic squat, you know, with a closet dial or just the bar or lightweight and learn the movement properly. Learn for how the knee, how the ACL and all the ligaments in the knee stabilize the joint in order for the large muscles, the prime movers, your, your, your glutes, your, your quads, your hamstrings to perform the movement. Um, we've discussed in the past about um, hip flexors who help stabilize the hip joint. Um, they can be overworked. They can be overtaxed just from our daily activities, sitting too long, standing too long, uh, riding your bike, doing a lot of other things. Okay. Um, muscle gets tired when it gets tired and it's fatigued. It shortens because it doesn't want to be pulled apart. Shortened hip flexors end up with a forward tilt to the pelvis, forward tilt to the pelvis takes away the lumbar in the spine. It goes right up your spine. If your spine's not functioning correctly, then the scapula has a tough time to stabilize around the thing. And it just, it just goes because it's all interconnected. Uh, another example is this over dependency on rotator cuff work. Um, you know, with tubing exercises or cross symmetry um, type apparatus, because then the the rotator cuff starts being trained to be the prime mover instead of being trained to stabilize the shoulder so that the large muscles can then, you know, move the arm and move the body with trunk rotation and the arm action and all that other stuff. Um, And this is where you see the problems that are created is that you see a 10 or 11 or 12 year old uh, doing tubing exercises as a, as a form of, if I'll say a workout, like this is how we're going to get our arms stronger instead of it being used as a warm up and a cool down to the activity whether it's the throwing activity for that day or the throwing program, or even, you know, your, your gym workout and your strength training. Um, it relates to that story that I've spoke of in the past of one time meeting up with Johnny Parker, New York giant strength coach under Bill Parcells in their, uh, in their glory years. And Johnny Parker was one of the most well-respected strength coaches in, in any sport with the success he had with the giants. And he used to run a, Monday, Tuesday, Thursday, Friday split, which, I mean, some could say it's a carryover from uh, bodybuilding, but uh, whatever the reasons. So he'd push, push on one day, pull on the next day, take a day off, push on one day, pull on the next day. And I asked him um, over dinner one night, do you, do you find that uh, the rotator cuff and the shoulder stability uh, starts getting taxed and you run into problems because when you're pushing, your rotator cuff is stabilizing your shoulder. When you're pulling, the rotator cuff is stabilizing your shoulder. When you're doing squats or deadlifts, the rotator cuff is stabilizing your shoulder. So you're not really giving the small muscles of the rotator cuff on a weekly basis uh, any time to rest and recover. And he said, uh, how do you know this stuff? And I said, well, my background is in uh, baseball and throwing. So I'm, I'm pretty good with throwing athletes and the different uh, things in the training protocols. And he said that I just had, I just had to rework my entire um, training protocol, on my weekly schedule. We had, um, now you think an offensive lineman, how, how much the posterior cuff and the, and the posterior uh, glenoid rate, uh, labrum gets hammered because they're continually getting their arms up and, and hitting those uh, defensive linemen um, in, in that upward thrust and upward push. 
And he said, I, I just had four linemen go in for labrum surgeries this offseason and rotator cuff problems. So, yes, you were, you know, 100% correct in some of the things that we have to make adjustments. And uh, so we can't lose sight of the fact that if we take a 10, 11, 12-year-old and even a teenager and we spend a significant, significant amount of time specifically in their off-season training, training their rotator cuff and their stabilizer muscles, well, those, those muscles are already getting enough work in the closed-chain kinetic exercise. So where would I rather spend my time? Um, doing isolation work or doing work that's going to overall improve me as an athlete and, and get me stronger? Um, something that happened to me uh, when I was training um, as a personal trainer in New York City, uh, over, over approximately a 10, 12 year period. So my daily activities at the time was that, uh, I would train eight or nine clients a day, six days a week, uh, for an hour. So I was doing eight or nine hours a day, uh, training clients. Well, this included guys in the squat rack. I'm helping him get the bar off with 225 pounds on. He's doing his squats. I'm re-racking the bar. We're over on a, a bench. I'm handing him 35-pound dumbbells. Uh, so throughout the eight or nine hours, I am lifting weights. Now, I'm not doing repetitions and sets, but I am carrying weights. I'm doing manual labor. and. Uh, in order to do it correctly and pain-free, my body has to learn to move properly, okay? All the stabilizer muscles are learning to stabilize. All the prime movers are doing the work or else I'd be exhausted at the end of the day. And over a period of time, one of the things that I noticed is that stability-wise and prime mover-wise, I was two to three times more stronger than I was before I started the training business. Now, I also was doing some training, but I had always done training for myself. So the act of manual labor, close chain kinetic exercise, if you want to put it in that respect, is what allowed my body to stabilize and grow stronger. Now, I wasn't doing any rotator cuff work. I wasn't doing any scap stability work. All right. But the fact that this was a continual process, you know, if you want to go eight hours a day for six days, 48 hours a week of manual labor, picking up weights, putting up weights, re-racking weights, okay, your body learns how to do it properly or else you'd have a sore back or lower back or sore hip or sore shoulder and all these things that occur. So a lot of that made me think more. And, and of course, that period of time that we've discussed in the past with the uh, the uh, Russian physical therapist in Westchester County and, and all the success that he had rehabbing athletes. Um, this is why I know for a fact, and, and um, I, I know some people would want to maybe argue the fact or have a discussion about it and the whole thing, and I'm open to that, but we have to train the prime movers. So in a nutshell, it's like, why are we doing isolation work when this 10-year-old can't even bend down and pick up a box properly? Okay. That's how the body learns to move. Okay. It, it doesn't learn to move by put, being put into a rehab-type environment of isolation work, according to the U.S. model, when it already is healthy. You know, we're, just, uh, we're training our stabilizer muscles or secondary muscles, if you want to say, to be the prime movers, and that's where we get into trouble. So it goes back to the studies that uh, were done on uh, Texas Rangers, specifically Nolan Ryan, and, and I'm at a loss right now of the exact date, but it was when Tom House was the pitching coach. And when they hooked up Ryan to uh, all this equipment to see which muscles were firing up during his delivery, 
they found out that the external rotators initiated the slowing down of the arm. That's all they did. The rotator cuff never fired up, fired up to a point that it was activated. And then they hooked up a high school pitcher, Texas high school pitcher who had pretty good success as far as his performance. And the rotator cuff fired up during the whole throwing process. Um, that's what I'm talking about is when the, when the stabilizing muscles end up dominating the movement. So even in the throwing action, in the arm action, the uh, supraspinatus muscle initiates the abduction of the arm. So it initiates the elbow getting up to the shoulder, right, in the arm action in the back. Um, and then it's done. The deltoid muscles, the larger prime movers, are the ones that put it in position. So if we're not trying, if we're not training those deltoid muscles, we're not training those prime movers, and we have an overdependence on the, uh, the stabilizing muscles, then the stabilizing muscles start dominating the movement, and they fire up during the whole process, internal so, rotation, okay. external rotation, the whole thing, and then we see the classic arm thrower, upper body arm thrower, and that the arm's not going for the ride. Okay? using the force that's generated by the body, the arm is dictating the ride, right? And that's where we run into problems, now, especially you, when workload, you know, increases. Do we see um, that more now with the kid, the way the kids are so not lined up? When you think of the concept of the clone chain, closed chain kinetic exercise, we're, I'd even call it closed chain kinetic movements. I try to stay away um, for the audience is for them to get into their mind that we're training movements. And when, after we move properly and we've learned the correct movement, we then start applying resistance or force to those movements, uh, for some, you know, progress as far as an overall strength. Um, you're going to be doing two to three full body workouts a week. Um, these workouts Okay, they're strength training based. Our goal is to get stronger. That's the goal right there. Now, I don't necessarily know 100% where the scientific community sits on this issue right now. But in the past, there was always the argument of how much carryover there is from sports specific work to general strength work and vice versa. Um, I don't necessarily have to get involved in that discussion or argument. I'm just, because I'm here working day to day to just get people better at what they do. Um, other guys, you know, can spend some time to try to figure those things out. But when you, when you think of strength training, <coughs> excuse me, and you want to break it down, you know, you could break, for me, you could break it down under this system of closed chain movements into five phases, but some of these phases actually, um, you know, blend a little bit, especially for the, for the little engaged guys, you know, there's the movement learning phase. I mean, your stabilizers are going to learn to, to stabilize when you're doing a squat with a, uh, a closet doll, you know, or extremely light dumbbell or body weight. Okay. And here's where we learn the movement. And now we see, if there's any muscular imbalances or different things and we start slow and we build up. And then once we learn the movement, we're moving into phase two, a prime mover strength, right? Now remember during this whole process, the stabilizer is still being worked. So we don't have to worry about it. And as we move up the ladder, um, you're talking, if you want to add the term maximal strength, but they can run together, especially for the young guys, meaning it's just a progression uh, in weight, um, since we're looking for a strength model here, a strength training protocol, we don't have to add on a tremendous amount of workload. I mean, I'm talking on a one workout, you do a squat variation, a push variation, a pull variation, and what I call full body. If you're using kettlebells and you want to do the kettlebell swings and all the variations of that, that's fine. Uh, or you can walk, work in different deadlift variations. But understanding that 
if on Monday you're going to squat, you might, you're not going to necessarily want to do deadlifts on that day also. You know, you vary the workloads. So you take the hardest version of the squat and you do it one day and you take the hardest version of the deadlift and you pick another day. All right. If you're going to do the hardest version of the press, so you alternate it around so that they're not, but specifically you watch the workload and intensity on the squat and the deadlift. Um, In a perfect world, as we've progressed, you know, we're going to, we're going to stick to six to eight successfully completed repetitions. Our goal is not muscular failure. Muscular failure has, oh, you know, last time I looked it up, there's probably seven or eight physical characteristics of muscular failure and four or five mental aspects of muscular failure. I'm not in a lab. A lot of our guys are not in a lab. We're not hooked up to all kinds of monitors that can tell us what each and one of those characteristics are. So if we don't necessarily, can't necessarily put our finger on exactly what muscular failure is on each individual we're working for, I can't use it as a, as a, as a goal, as a standard for what the workout program is supposed to be. Are there programs that do that? We do completely, complete, successful repetitions. We try to stay in the six to eight range. There's going to time when you move into maximal strength for especially the teenage guys that were maybe down to the four to six uh, range as far as our repetitions. So when we break down those phases, we, you know, we've discussed the, the, the movement learning phase and then into the prime mover strength phase. And if you want to differentiate into maximal strength, so we're only talking about taking our rep schemes from say six to eight, uh, but definitely less than 10. And then on the maximal strength, going into the four to six. And that also uh, can be a, what's traditionally used as far as the power phase. Uh, for you, with, you were talking about to failure. Are there programs that do that? We, we, we spoke about it last week, I believe, and the week before a little bit, where pitching programs sometimes will, will try to get guys to throw while they're fatigued and bad things happen. Are there weight training programs that do that? And is that at all beneficial? Um, I know you want to have markers. You mentioned being, I know you're, and I, I agree with you. You want to be scientific about it, but are there, is that where kids get into problems anyway, where they're without this, without the marker, they may be training to fatigue for ego purpose. Well, I think what happens, especially with the younger guys um, and even the teenagers, you know, it's the phenomenon of when I believe that when weightlifting and different things were introduced into the United States and became popular, they followed a lot of, uh, you know, strongman contests to uh, bodybuilding type activities. Um, when I use the word sports specific, I'm not necessarily saying different movements for different sports. What I'm saying is that um, the whole goal is to get stronger quicker and more powerful. Um, now, when you go into an advanced training facility and people are of uh, pretty good knowledge, they understand that. But when you're dealing with some of the younger players that we deal with, um, you know, they're being taught to do exercises by their dads or their, or their coaches and might not be necessarily trained in those areas. And, you know, we, just like playing the game, throw harder, throw far, farther, try harder. You know, we get in the weight room and everybody wants to lift more weight or everybody wants to do, uh, you know, other things. And there's different training protocols out there for fitness and stuff that, uh, you know, are beneficial. Um, but they don't really monitor workload. So that's where, you know, the, it started way back with the knowledge training principles and different things and the high intensity training principles that um, there was forced reps and eccentric reps and all these other things that were done to try to uh, increase the stress placed on a muscle. Well, what we're doing here is we're, we're training movements. We're not training muscles. We're training movements so that they can put the levers in the proper position. So to use muscular failure as the goal, as, as the main cog in the, in the training protocol is, uh, doesn't work well as far as I'm concerned. Um, yeah, I wanted to get that out because I think there's a lot of kids out there, you know, we see it with the heavy ball routines, which, 
you know, if monitored, things things can work. But a lot of these kids are turned loose or they're watching or being directed in the wrong way. And something like muscular failure, you, you better know what you're doing no. uh, in that regard. So, yeah, I didn't mean to, to pull it off there, but I wanted to make sure our audience is clear on that because you made a good point. Um, and it just further enhances the information you're providing today. Yeah, exactly. Um, like I said, uh, I often keep in the back of my mind that uh, it isn't necessarily the prophet that screws things up, but most likely many times his disciples. So all of a sudden you, you might get, you know, back in the, in the heyday of high intensity training, you had Dr. Dr. Ken Leisner, who was a chiropractor out on Long Island, and uh, everything was on the Nautilus one set to failure type of thing and the force reps and eccentric reps. And uh, he wasn't necessarily doing a bad thing because he was, he was catering to his, uh, his uh, strength contest type community. And then all of a sudden, uh, a young coach or a father or other people decide that that's the way a, a baseball player should be trained. And, it's not really beneficial for your long-term health. I would rather stick with the training of the movement and, and then slowly build up to apply resistance to the movement and have successful movements. So neuromuscularly, we're training our body, our brain, our nerves, and our muscles how to react in a proper fashion, in the proper movement, and with their proper explosiveness. Um, and then when you move into the power phase, Especially for young guys, there's a lot of ways we don't have to get, you know, heavy into Olympic lifting, you know, power cleans and hang cleans and these type of things and snatches. You, you know, you, you can go into medicine ball work. You can go in a lot of other way, areas, um, even doing sprints for the younger guys. I mean, there's a lot of areas that you're going to bring improvement in, you know, power and maximal power and force created over time. Um and and that's one of the reasons why in the past I've I've spoken so highly of how I, for that age group I like to use kettlebells once I've taught them how to do the movements the proper way. Uh, the one thing to add to the medicine ball work is um, after fourteen I don't mind all the rotational work you want to do, but under the age of fourteen the skeletal system in in the majority of young players is not. Um, strong enough or formed enough to add the rotational type activity. I would stick to the linear, you know, pushes and throws, you know, straight, straight back, straight forward. Um, they get enough rotation, just running around playing baseball and doing the other things. Um, you know, that's a hot topic nowadays because I know people have talked a lot uh, recently about o oblique pulls and all this other stuff. Uh, I think that's one of the situations where all of a sudden the stabilization muscle becomes a prime mover because it's trained that way, uh, instead of having the stabilization secondary muscles work in conjunction with the prime mover. Um, so after you've gone through the, 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 str the strength protocol. Um, yeah, can, I, so can I bring you back there? Because we see a lot of this on YouTube. These kids that are taking 14 crow hops and trying to jack that ball as hard as they can to get a max velocity, would that be a, an example of abusing a prime mover? too early in life uh yes and and that comes into uh, one of the next things i want to talk about um but first just a reminder on the schedule because we you know especially down south people want to play ball year round in the warm weather climates or you know i'm here in charlotte and and even for the young guys eight and nine years old their travel season didn't end until uh, around halloween and a couple of them are still involved in these all-star all-star showcases and stuff um, that really only live, leaves you December and starting into January to apply some of these concepts and protocols, which is not a great amount of time. So in essence, we're probably only looking at, uh, learning a movement and, and staying strength-based. And then as we move into January, if I were going, if I was going to use a hypothetical, uh, start time for the season, spring training or tryouts or first workouts, first bullpens, of March 1st, you realize that in the ages 9 to 12, you know, that that on-ramp, that build-up is going to be a four- to five-week period. So that's probably around the first week of February. Age 13 to 14, that's five to six weeks. That's 
that's you know January twenty second to January twenty ninth of the upcoming year two thousand twenty four, and then you go to fifteen to eighteen. It's usually seven to eight weeks on ramp. That's January eighteenth to January fifteenth, where you would begin um, your on ramp. And what I use the term on ramp. Now we're looking to increase the volume of training, but reduce some of the intensity. Because now we're adding, if you want to call sports-specific movements and stability-type works, scapular stability, spinal stability, rotator cuff work, some plyo work if it's done correctly, um, you know, as an exercise. Some of the things that you just brought up, uh, you know, it, that uh, add into a throwing program. And then you're starting um, on those dates that I gave you. You're starting your, your throwing programs, and there's a buildup. So um, at ages 9 to 12, you're probably looking at one to two weeks of interval throwing, you know, playing catch, you know, moving out to, you know, 40 feet, 45 feet, the whole entire thing. And then as you get into it, um, into that four to five weeks, you start to add one day of the week, you add a flat ground session one day of the week, you add a bullpen. Um, you don't really want at that age group to throw on consecutive days. And you're looking at probably building up to about a 20 to 25 pitch bullpen. So in the on-ramp, you're still doing some of your strength training at the beginning. Let's say if we were going to call the on-ramp month January. Um, first two weeks of January, you're still attempting to get some of that strength work in there um, so that we've extended it to, say, December into January for a month and a half. Uh, but now as we add, we add volume, we're going to be throwing, we're going to be doing warm-ups and cool-downs. We're going to be other activities to introduce the stability-type exercises into the situation. Um, you know, it's, it's a slow and gradual build-up. Um, for ages 13 to 14, you know, you're looking at about two to three weeks of interval throwing program before you start your flat ground and your bullpens. And you're looking at one bullpen to start and then work up to two bullpens throwing in one or two flat ground sessions in there during that period of time. Um, at, at that age group, guys start throwing every day, but I would not throw more than three consecutive days. And our goal is to work up to a 30 to 40 pitch bullpen. So if we're, if we're nearing a 30 to 40 pitch bullpen for the ages 13 to 14, as we're approaching March 1st, our hypothetical you know start date, we're, we're doing pretty good. And then, the 15, 18-year-olds, you just still got about a two- to three-week interval throwing program before you start adding flat ground and bullpens. Same thing. Um, same thing as the younger group, you know, don't throw three consecutive days, work up to two bull, bullpens of work, add the flat ground in there when appropriate. And you're probably looking at about a 50 to 60 pitch bullpen because one of the things to understand is that especially that 15 to 18 group, you know, they're going to have a couple of secondary pitches uh, in this day and age. So the bullpen is going to naturally last a little longer because we're mixing in 10 curveballs or 15 change-ups and different things like that. Um, for the youngest group, 9 to 12, that build up to 20 to 25 pitches. We're going to try to keep that to 20 to 25 fastballs, you know, and then, due to all the throwing programs and the conditioning that we've spoke about in the past. Um, that's kind of it in a nutshell. I mean, yes, there's more detail to that. There's more specifics to it. But as far as for the podcast here, uh, if your guy is uh, played up to Halloween, uh, let him have what I call some active rest in November. He, he can still hit a little bit and do – but, I mean – kind of reduce the throwing, especially for the guys that threw pretty regularly throughout the the spring and the fall. Uh, You're looking at a March 1st start time, two to three weeks. They're starting around Valentine's Day, maybe a little bit before. And they're rolling, as you said, some of these kids are just finishing up. Um, that's, that's again, that's a lot. That's training kids and kids playing like men do. And that's, uh, I think the act of rest is, is imperative. I, I like that idea. Yeah, and... Um, the thing that happens, like if we take, if we take for example, the young group, nine to twelve year olds, right? So they take a 
they take November off running around, riding their bike, climbing trees, you know, all the things that kids do. Hey, if they want to play basketball, if, if, if maybe they're doing other things, other sports, that's absolutely outstanding. And, um, and now again, this, this is an outline for pitchers who, you know, usually pitch pretty regularly, you know, once a week going into the upcoming season. Um, you know, it still works for, for guys. You know, if you look at the young group, one or two weeks of interval throwing, you know, followed by the uh, flat grounds in the bullpen. So for the position players, if you take that out to two to three weeks interval throwing, you're going to be pretty good. But the key here for like that young group, nine to 12 is, so November's my uh, active rest. December's my, my get into my strength program. I can bring that out to, you know, almost through the third week of January to the end of January. And then, um, and then, uh, February starts my on-ramp where my exercise choices change because the volume is increased. I'm starting my throwing programs and we take it from there. Um, you know, as we get older, now you see even the, even the, it's almost like increased importance of, of that annual schedule because those guys are still playing the Halloween and, and really we still need that active rest in November. And now December comes and we really have a month to get stronger, you know, for the guys that play in the spring and the fall. So we only have a month to get stronger. Uh, and then, you know, January, you're going to start your on-ramp because for the 13 and 14 year olds, you're going to start the throne programs, you know, on the 22nd and 29th, 22nd or 29th of January, you know, by the end of the month. And then at the 15 to 18, you know, middle of January, you're going to start your throwing program. So the on-ramp really has uh, two weeks of uh, increasing the volume of exercise, even if some of it is still strength-based, into, you know, starting our throwing programs. And then once we get up on the, on the mound – um, what's very important is we really have to monitor the overall workload of the week and, uh, and even then the month. But if we stick to the week and we break it down the days, I mean, we don't want to, in our strength program, do our four closed chain kinetic exercises and then just automatically add a full, uh, rotator cuff program and a full scapular stability and the throwing program. So this is, you know, you kind of inch up to it, you know, so that you have a control over the workload. And we're always remembering that as workload increases, the intensity has got to decrease. So we got to keep an eye on that. Um, and, and a lot of that, you know, is based on the individual. Um, I found too. One, one of the things that you know, even for young kids that sometimes we, we have a habit of doing is I know Dave, you use the term cookie cutter, but every individual, every person is an individual. They're different. Okay. And a lot of what we're talking about here, this, um, to work best, this has to be personalized. We have to take into account an individual's ability to handle work and an individual's ability to recover. Um, you know, there, there's modalities out there that can be helpful. Um, you know, I did some work for, uh, Modus and now they're, they're sold to a driveline. It's now called the, the pulse trainer. Um, there's things there that are beneficial that could be, you know, added into the program to help monitor workload. Uh, but I think that's probably a, a discussion for another day. Yeah. Well, I think um, with our audience, I got a lot of good stuff to do. Make sure we. So one of the things uh, to the audience, Dave, that I'd like to uh, say is, uh, as planned, we're going to be off next week for the week of Thanksgiving, and uh, so I hope everybody uh, has a great Thanksgiving and stays healthy. Uh, one of the things that uh, I'd like to convey to the audience is that uh, as this year comes to a close, I'm very thankful for uh, 
Wiley and Will for having me on their first podcast and Kevin Kernan and then my introduction to Dave D'Agostino so that I was given the opportunity to present this information to the audience and um, so that's what I give thanks for. Yeah. Well, our audience appreciates you as well, Jim, as does our network and 60,000 subscribers almost there now. Um, appreciate your support. Give this five stars. Write some nice comments so we can battle the analytics of the podcast world just like we do in baseball. Blackout Coffee. Make sure you hit David, all capitals, with the number 20 afterwards. And that way you get 20% off the uh, purchase at the checkout aisle there. So, And you'll get 15% in perpetuity. But thanks again for Jim Rooney here. Toe the rubber. Great information for kids. Make sure you reach out to him. And with that, Real Voices of Game, Episode 355 in the books.